Uh, we're going to be in Numbers chapter 7 and diving in. And again, we've been working through this book, and I just want to kind of give us a little recap where we are. If you're going by the little um, map from the Bible Project, and again, we have more up here. If you want a copy, you can grab one. But we're sitting over here in this at Mount Sinai. And numbers is really, if you want to do it geographically, you know you have three places. If you want to break it up into to narrative, you have these middle travel portions. A lot of it overlaps, but we're on the first geographical location. We're dealing with uh, one, 50% of why Numbers gets the name Numbers is obviously all those counts. So uh, the book begins, as we've looked at, with God calling Moses to number the people. And that was done on the first day of the second month of the second year. And that's helpful because today we're doing, or tonight we're doing a look back before heading out. So we're actually going to go back in time. We're actually going to go back before God called Moses to number. We're going to be here talking about some of the things that took place in Exodus, recapping some of that stuff, giving us details that relate to numbers. Now, as we've Walk through, we have a census take place, we have the tribes counted, they're placed around the tabernacle, <coughs> they're given their marching orders, which is when they head out of camp, how they're going to march, how they're going to protect the people, all those kind of things. The Levites have been formally, <coughs> excuse me, dedicated God's service, and they're replacing the firstborn of all Israel, uh, those born since leaving Egypt. So that number, 23,000 something, I think 23,100 are the firstborn that have been born in Israel since leaving Egypt through this last year. And each clan has been given their responsibilities. We know this information, which will make sense when we get forward. God has highlighted, chapter 5, specific laws of cleanliness, dealing with outward infection, dealing with inward infection, dealing with community infection. We talked about those resolutions and those wrongs that have been done that restitution to be made for, and dealing with family infection, uh, discord in the family, problems of, of a, a very uh, fractioning, disunified nature, things that emphasize, and he did this, God's holy presence in the camp and the need for cleanliness, unity, and resolution among the people as they head out together. In other words, God wants everyone on the same page. He wants them to understand what they're doing, why they're doing it, that he's among them, that they need to work as a unit, that they have a specific role, that he is taking the firstborn and then we swap out for the Levites. We're getting set up as they head out, God's people, to fulfill his purpose in giving them the promised land. Don't lose sight of this. God's purpose is to give Israel Canaan. He promised it. He's going to deliver it. They're marching with God's purpose in mind, and he doesn't want them to lose sight of that. They're marching to do what God has promised to give them, to accomplish for them, and they're to be his people, as he told Abraham. They're to be set apart from the nations, not in the sense of isolation, but in holiness, set apart to him. They are to be his people, and they are to shine a light to the world. This is their role, and they're marching to fulfill this portion of the promise to occupy the promised land. So in light of that, we had walked through last week the Nazarite vow. And as you think about it, understand the flow that's in numbers. We count the people, we organize the people, we set these laws of cleanliness, we set apart the Levites, and now we're coming to this Nazarite vow where any Israelite can, can set themselves even more so apart for the Lord, to be holy unto the Lord. And so we walk through this open yet unique opportunity 
to be God's chosen people, to sacrifice for him, to be obviously set apart for him. And we looked at that. It was something that cost them. They physically didn't get to partake of the luxury, some of the luxuries of life. They had hair that would have been very distinct, and, and we often like to think of nice flowing locks, and it's permed, and it's clean, and it's just utterly lovely, right? And the reality is, is it probably was a natted mess that came down, hard to clean, but it depends how long the vow was, and, and they, that would have been their crown, and it was obvious they were set apart uh, for God. When they closed out the vow, it cost them dearly. The price, really, of what a priest would give to be consecrated, they had to give plus whatever else they promised. And then that chapter closed with the ironic blessing, which a lot of times we love to, to close with, uh, to, to repeat. But the reality of that is that is actually God speaking to his people. God is blessing. And he makes it very clear that as you bear my name, and that means as you bear my identity, as you are the light to the world, as you represent this, he's pouring this blessing on them of protection, of grace or favor, and then lastly, his attention, and not just casual, but a focused, intricate involvement in life. And it ends with this emphatic I. God says, I will bless them. Who can bless his people? God can. And then what God is trying to communicate is only God can. God will bless them as only God can for those who bear his name. In other words, God's blessing is irreplaceable. It is not something that we fabricate ourselves. It's not something we bestow. The church cannot replace God's blessing. We function as his bride, but I don't replace God. You can't replace God. It's God who blesses. And so now, as we dive into chapter 7, we're going to take a look back. And they kind of lump 5 through 10. They kind of rush. And so here we sit, laws about ritual purity, but really that's just chapter 5. 6 through 10 is not on your quote-unquote map here. And what we're going to dive into is a look back before heading out. We're going to go back in time a little bit that when Moses sets up the tabernacle, when he anoints the tabernacle, what takes place? And then we're going to first walk our way through gifts. And like it sees here, we're going to see first the gifts for the Levites. And I call them logistical gifts given to the Lord, but were designed to help the Levites serve in the tabernacle. So if you have your Bibles, Numbers chapter 7. And I'm not going to be able to read every verse from chapter 7 through chapter 10, verse 10. But I'll read selections and then we'll kind of fill in as we go. Uh, verse, uh, chapter 7 says this, And it came to pass on the day that Moses had fully set up the tabernacle and had anointed it and sanctified it and all the instruments thereof, both the altar and the vessels thereof, that had anointed them and sanctified them, that the princes of Israel, heads of the house of their fathers, who were the princes of the tribes and were over them that were numbered, offered... And they brought their offering before the Lord, six covered wagons and twelve oxen, a wagon for two of the princes, and for each one an ox. And they brought them before the tabernacle. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, in other words, they, after the tabernacle set up, and then we're going to go backwards a little bit more in all the anointing for the tabernacle, but this 
keynote of gifts for the Levites really are gifts for God that now we're going to see God give to the Levites. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take it of them, that they may be to do the service of the tabernacle of the congregation. And thou shalt give them unto the Levites, to every man according to his service. And Moses took the wagons and the oxen and gave them unto the Levites. Two wagons and four oxen he gave unto the sons of Gershon, according to their service. They carried the medium weight items. And four wagons and eight oxen he gave unto the sons of Merari, according unto their service, under the hand of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. But unto the sons of Koath he gave none, because the service of the sanctuary belonging unto them was that they should bear upon their shoulders. And I put, why list the gifts here and not earlier? Why, why do we go back in time now and list the gifts and why they went there? And, and, and I think it's obvious we first in Numbers find out who's doing what. That's the, the sons of Gershon had to move the heavy poles. The sons of Merari are moving some of the coverings and trappings. And the sons of Koath are carrying the altar. They're carrying the lampstand. They're carrying all the instruments, and they're not to put on a wagon. And so why does God go back in time? Why does he instruct Moses, because this is the inspired word of God, to list this now? It's because it was given before, and God actually assigned it to each of the clans And then it is a little bit later on down the line that each of these clans in the Levites find out that you're doing this and this person's doing that and the other person's doing this. And what we we see is, is as they're giving this out, one, I want us to notice that there's equality of giving. And we're going to see this, this unity. Every tribe gave a combo gift. So the prince of Judah and the prince of Issachar, whatever, you know, whatever they got together and said, hey, we're going to get a wagon out of this. And then the next two go and they're going to get what they're going to give. And then everyone brought an ox. And I want you to see something. I listed as gifts for the Levites, but these people gave it to the, who? It's to the Lord. The Lord then designated who would have it based on the responsibilities that he would be giving to them. They don't know yet. And then notice I call the distribution of giving. And like we read, two, four, and none, because each gift would relate to the work that was being taken place. And I want us to notice something in this gift, because it's a work gift, right? It's, it feels mundane. Instead of calling the people and saying, hey, why don't you give a gift to help the Levites haul the stuff? And they'll say, yeah. They'll figure it out. They got their own wagons. They got their own ox. They got their own stuff. They can do this. Instead, the gift comes from them to God, and God distributes to those who need it. And I put our Lord is immensely practical as well as wise because gifts are bestowed to different clans before they know what they're going to be doing. Who moves what? That takes place later. Now we're coming back to this time. We're seeing, ah, God gave them this. God gave that group that. And the Koath, they have nothing. But when you read about who's assigned what, you think about the, the poor sons of, uh, uh, sons of Merari, I think it is. And you think, man, they're going to have to carry heavy stuff on their own. And the sons of Koath, they got off easy. They carry all the light, precious stuff. And the other guy has to haul the, the log post all around everywhere. And then you realize in God's wisdom, he set this up for them. Now, these gifts pale in comparison to the gifts for the altar. And 
Numbers repeats itself, does it not? If you read Numbers, uh, chapter 7 is highly repetitive. So we have a tendency to, to say, oh man, I'm done reading this. And we get frustrated, right? Because we we're in the economy of time, right? We want to make sure that we, God don't waste my time on this in this way. I'm going to read the first one, and then we're going to kind of walk through it. But I want you to get in mind one thing, and I know some Bibles will list it. First day, the prince of Judah came, and this is what he gave. Let me start with verse 10. And the princes offered for dedicating of the altar in the day that it was anointed. Even the princes offered their offering before the altar. And the Lord said unto Moses, they shall offer their offering, each prince on his day, for the dedicating of the altar. So one thing I want you to notice is this takes place over 12 days. This is a 12-day worship time, and each tribe is going to be bringing these offerings for that one day. It's not like they're piled up, dump them on them, and the, princes, uh, the, the priests are then going to offer and sanction out. But instead, one, day one comes Judah, day two comes the next tribe, day three, and it works its way through. I'm going to read 12 through 17 so we see what each tribe is giving. And he that offered his offering the first day was Nashon, the son of Aminadab of the tribe of Judah. And it makes sense that they lead, right? They lead out in the march. They're, the, they're in the prime spot. The king's going to come from there. Messiah is coming from Judah. This is, makes perfect sense. It all lines up. And it goes in. His offering was one silver charger. The weight thereof was 130 shekels. One silver bowl of 70 shekels. After the shekel of the sanctuary. Both of them were full of fine flour mingled with oil for a meat offering. One spoon of 10 shekels of gold full of incense. And notice, they're giving the instrument and they're giving the offering at the same time. One young bullock, one ram, one lamb of the first year for a burnt offering. One kid of the goats for a sin offering. And for a sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five he goats, five lambs of the first year. This was the offering of Nashon, the son of Abinadab. Day one. And then I want to go to 84, verse 84 because we go through 12 days of this, as each one comes forward to offer the same things, and then 84 through 88, you get a picture of it compiled. This was the dedication of the altar in the day when it was anointed by the princes of Israel, 12 chargers of silver, 12 silver bowls, 12 spoons of gold, each charger of silver weighing 130 shekels, each bowl 70, all the silver vessels weighed 2,400 shekels, after the shekel of the sanctuary. I was about to ask somebody, can you do the math? But scripture does it for us because they want us to understand the details. They want to know exactly what took place. The golden spoons were 12, full of incense, weighing 10 shekels apiece. After the shekel of the sanctuary, all the gold of the spoons was 120 shekels. All the oxen for the burnt offering were 12 bullocks, the rams 12, the lambs of the first year 12, with their meat offering, and the kids of the goats for a sin offering 12. And all the oxen for the sacrifice of the peace offerings were 20 and 4 bullocks, the rams 60, the he goats 60, the lambs of the first year 60. This was the dedication of the altar. After that, it was anointed. All those animals are sacrificed over a 12-day period. And what we have is every tribe coming forward. And what do we see again? Equality in what? In unity, giving, right? They gave the same thing, the same amount every time. Uh, I put as a question, why equal gifts regardless of the size of the tribe? Why, 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 why is it important that it's all equal? 
No boasting. Anything else? Nope. It's true, right? What happened, and this is going to throw you forward, if you've sat through Judges, you've seen this come up twice. What tribe tends to think they have the preeminence in the time of the Judges? Ephraim, yeah. Why do you think that's the case? I mean, they come up pretty boldly. Yeah, that's what they're going to think about. Guess where the tabernacle sits? In their territory? And notice they don't come up when the fighting starts. They tend to show up after you've won the battle. Right? Gideon's winning. Why don't you call us? Jephthah conquers him. Why don't you call us? And I want you to see something in human nature, because it's so far back, and we're going to start compiling the years together, but it doesn't take us long, a couple hundred years, and we're there. But the tendency of people is to own it. Say it's mine. And you might think, oh, but surely, Kenny, the church would never do that. Could you imagine if one tribe would have given one extra bowl and one extra spoon, what their mentality about the tabernacle would have been? Or the time that the priest may have? Or what was offered to them? To give a sad illustration, in the last three months, I've sat down with somebody who, no kidding, presumed that their demographic gave more money and then followed up with the presumption that that money should have bought them more pastoral time. One, he has no idea of the demographics giving, nor do I. Two, how wicked is that? Right? What is the resp- our response? Right away we're like, but then stop for a second and think about your mentality sometimes. How quickly do we think, well, I gave that. I should get this. They should at least know. And I want us to get something that happens. I'm going to go back to the gifts for the Levite. Who do they give it to? God. We came for the gifts for the altar, and I just want you to see God's wisdom. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that mankind isn't sinful, humankind, but the wisdom in having every tribe give the same because at least he's removed as they march out. Well, we gave extra silver. When it comes to giving our burnt offering, I think I should be first. Because I didn't give 200 shekels. My tribe gave 400. And he's removed this. Why equal gifts? Because we very quickly think we own God. And it's a dangerous place to be. If you look at applications and numbers... And you're going to see this over and over again, how God wants his people to understand the need for unity and the fact that they don't own him. Who owns who? God owns us. We belong to him. We are his servants. Then I asked this last one, why list it all in longhand? Surely there was a shorter way to do this. Yes. It reminds us, right? It, 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 what is it? What, when you read this, you have no doubt that every tribe gave. Well, how much did Issachar give? Same as Judah. No, the prince of Issachar. On the second day, a name that's hard to pronounce, Nathaniel, 
Nathaniel, I guess, in longhand. The son of Zuar, everything's long. Prince of Issachar did offer, and it listed. And every prince, his name is listed. The leader is listed. This leader from this tribe took care of this in this moment. Each gift, though the same, was given by specific people and by a specific tribe. And you see that in unity, there's no ownership that they can grab. They can't. He's preventing temptation. God is. He's buffering against who we are. Yet every name that's listed, one, in an Eastern culture, this would build excitement. We're bored, and they see the repetitive nature of giving to God, and it makes them think, wow, this is amazing. And even though they know it, they're walking through it. They're relishing the praise that comes to God, the gifts that come to God. We have a tendency to say, well, if I didn't give it, I don't want to talk about it. It's not, not my thing. That was Issachar's thing. I did my thing on the first day. I'm checking out. Someone else's day. But they're going to emphasize the specific or the individual that comes with this, that God is honored in this, that God is worshipped, that this is walking through and there's rejoicing and there's very specific nature that is there. And I go back to that Ephraim thing. How quickly do people start thinking, oh, I'm more important to this. This ranks above that. But God is removing this kind of mentality. If we want to bring a broad principle to this to help us understand it, we need to work on our disposition and battle against it. One, let's recognize something about ourselves. We tend to do this. We tend to say, you know what? I did X, so I get Y. They gave P, so give them a Q, right? This is, we, well, I'm not judging based on that, but I'm kind of judging, right? That's how we, we work this. Because we make valuations on temporal numbers and goods, and that's how we think. And right away, sometimes people are like, yeah, I know that, but really, you know, the world doesn't turn without some money, right? The mentality shifts. We're quick. We're quick to go back to it because that's human nature, and notice what God is doing with his people is he's putting a protection in place because he knows who we are. It says, I think in the New Testament, it was Jesus. He says he didn't buy into what they said because he knows what is in the heart of man. He knows. And we see God's wisdom. Then God speaks to Moses. <coughs> and it's a beautiful transition in 89 uh, through 8 verse 4. As God speaks to Moses from above the mercy seat between the two cherubim, and he gives instructions, interestingly enough, about the placement of the lamps. And it's just an interesting move. We, we go from gifts for the Levites to carry the tabernacle as we dedicate, after we dedicate the tabernacle. Then we move back further in time, and we look at all these abundant gifts that, that are brought for the sacrifice on the altar and everything that's taking place. And then God speaks to Moses from the mercy seat, in the tabernacle, between the cherubim. You can't get any more aha moment right now, right? God there speaking to him, and he says, make sure Aaron turns the lamps the right way. That's literally the summarization of that. Make sure the light shines forward, not backwards. Interesting. Now the altar's out here, and the lamp's on the other end of it in the tabernacle. And the light, if it shines forward... Shines, this is why it helps to know where the placement is in the tabernacle. It shines on the showbread. And the showbread is 12 loaves of bread representing who? It's the tribes, yeah. 
There's the tribes of Israel. And the light shining on it represents what? Whose light? God. And so you have the altar, and then you have this lampstand, and, and he says, and I make sure it faces forward, and, and it, it sheds light, and the importance of the direction of the light is the reality that if it doesn't shine forward, it doesn't shine light on the tribes. And so everything they did every day pointed to this idea of God's presence and God's light shining on his people and his presence. Now, interestingly enough, the altar is attended to twice a day, and you have to light the altar to offer offerings, right? Fire. What do you need to have a lamp? Fire. And Aaron would work the lampstand morning and evening. Two ends, two different functions, both attended twice a day. And what we have is God speaking in this transitional look, saying to them, hey, with the gifts for the altar, and as we transition, he talks to Moses, he's pleased. God's pleased with them. And then he says, I want you to go ahead and make sure the lampstands are facing and lighting the people so they understand every time that this is pictured in their mind, God's light shines on them. Illumination would come from him. Now we move uh, to what comes next, and, and it follows is the prescription for the Levites' dedication, and that's 8, 5 through 22. And, and I want to share a little bit, and this will get to the keeping of the Passover after this, but it's interesting because now God reminds them or, or recounts the dedication of the Levites and, and reiterates to them what it's about. The Levites are going to replace the firstborn and make atonement through their service. Didn't God already talk about this, though, early on in Numbers? But we're recounting this dedication. The Levites are going to replace the firstborn and make atonement through their service. And this links to the great redemption from Egypt, right? Who died in Egypt? The firstborn. A lot of other people before that, but the firstborn is the exit. And then the Levites, and this is fascinating, they're offered to God as a wave offering. And the congregation, as you read those verses, the congregation represented by the princes come and lay their hands on the Levites and then they offer the Levites to God as an offering. God doesn't have human sacrifice get killed. And so what follows is then the Levites lay their hands on two bulls and the bulls are then sacrificed. And so it is a passing of a t it's literally symbolic for them. They're watching as the Levites are. Here is, you're getting everything. You're getting the call of the firstborn coming from us that should be given to God. Now it's on you. And because we're not going to slaughter you right now, then they lay their hands on the bull for atonement. One for a sin offering and one for a burnt offering, which would be an offering of consecration, dedication. And what happens is, again, we're reminded, and you've got to think to yourself, why, if God says something twice, it's like you put a highlighter on it. Understand this idea of atonement. They're replacing. They're fulfilling a role that you have to fulfill. They're atoning for something. And understand what's implied there is we're reminded over and over they're God's people, but they don't need to be entitled or assume that they're suddenly better than everyone else. God is making sure they understand that they need God, that they need the atonement, that they need the sacrifice for sin, and that they need to have a sacrifice for consecration. They're the replacement for the firstborn of Israel that are before the Lord, thus fulfilling God's requirement, and they're prepared to serve in the tabernacle or the tabernacle area. And then as a side note, he mentions this also keeps Israel safe from irreverently approaching God. 
He does it to protect them. Chapter 8, verses 20. And Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel did to the Levites according unto all that the Lord commanded Moses concerning the Levites, so did the children of Israel unto them. And the Levites were purified, and they washed their clothes, and Aaron offered them as an offering before the Lord, and Aaron made atonement for them to cleanse them. And after that went the Levites in to do their service in the tabernacle of the congregation before Aaron and before his sons, as the Lord had commanded Moses concerning the Levites, so did they unto them. If you go back in Numbers towards the beginning, we read about how they camped around the tabernacle, and if someone from Judah wandered into that area, what were they supposed to do to them? Kill them. Because he can't come in and bring the wrath of God upon the whole community irreverently approach God. And now we're coming to this recap of their role and they're to work the tabernacle area and God's going to end and talk about the fact that, hey, they do this so that no one will blow it. And then it concludes chapter 8 with the ages of service. Levites worked from 25 to 50 years of age. That's when they did their work. Then they retired. And we're all like, well, it's not a bad gig. Who here is over 50? Okay, don't have to admit it. Uh, I wrote down five more years for Kenny. You know, I'm done in five. And I'm like, whew. But then I read beyond that, it says they don't do any of the heavy lifting or work in loading the wagons, but they still would stand guard. No more heavy duty work, but they are helping the younger men make sure that God's holy house remains undefiled by an errant Israelite. And we think to ourselves, well, they're keeping guard to punish Israelites, and we miss the idea that they're keeping guard to protect Israel. Their job, their responsibility carried forward, that we are not to have an irreverent approach to God. One of the things you pull from numbers as we walk through, and I've shared this before, and all through the Pentateuch, you're supposed to get this idea and concept. We serve a merciful and gracious God, a kind God, a forgiving God, a God of second and a million chances. But nowhere in the Bible does it say, approach God irreverently. I've been asked innumerable times about such and such country song that has Jesus hanging out with you, and he's your buddy and he's your wingman, and that's garbage. Because you don't approach God that way. And we've done a huge disservice in portraying God in that way. Is he a friend that sticks closer than a brother? Of course he is. Did he die on the cross for our sins? Of course he is. Is he God? Of course he is. Are you God? Absolutely not. Approach God reverently. And if you, we look through numbers and you can kill someone if they come into the area, then understand that God's serious about the approach to him. We take away from this, again, a reminder of God's seriousness about how we approach him and how we view him. He is not us. We're made in his image, but he's not a big version of us, and we're not many gods. Yeah. And remember the people when it said they wanted Moses to go because they were petrified because he gave them an image there of what's going on? They're still at the same Mount Sinai, and it hasn't been that long since it's there. And God is teaching over and over again this idea of understanding His holiness and His presence and the amazingness that's there. Now, the focus shifts as we move into 9. 
We're kind of getting towards the end of our recap here, and it's the keeping of the Passover at Mount Sinai. Obviously, associated that as the Feast of Unleavened Bread that follows right after it. Now, this occurred in the first month on the 14th day and lasted eight days. And if you remember, when the sacrifices for the tabernacle were the first month of the second year, the first 12 days. And so we finished 12 days of sacrificing for the altar. Two days later, we're celebrating the Passover, and it's kept for eight days. And, th- and this is the second Passover, but the first since leaving Egypt. And it's an important stepping forward point. Israel is in Egypt. They celebrate the Passover. What happens after that? They leave Egypt, right? They're gone. And here we come to this pinnacle point of all this instruction, things taking place. And what can we expect to happen after the Passover? Movement. We're going. This is, so this refocuses them. What does the Passover tell them? What are we to remember with the Passover? What, what, what does it remind Israel of? God fights for them, right? What, is it, what else does it tell us about God? For them. Mercy, because he passed over them, right? God rescued and redeemed them. God granted them mercy and grace. What is the Passover highlighting? Whose character? God's character. It's, it's, it's his, not, not highlighting Israelites. It's him that they're focused in on. So it's, it's critical. And there's a call for a very strict adherence a question comes up. Some men encountered some dead bodies or a dead body. And they come to Moses and say, wait a second. We need to do purification seven days with the Passover as a start. Are we to miss this second Passover first since leaving the land? Are we to miss this moment? And God instructs them, no, you're not. Actually, he, we look at this as men coming in like, oh, why don't you about whiners? Don't touch a dead body before the Passover. God sees this as exactly what he wants. Israelites passionate about partaking of this Passover and celebrating God's redemption and God's mercy and grace that he's extended to them. And so he says, the next month, I want you to keep the Passover. If you've encountered someone dead and you're now unable to keep the Passover, then the second month, you keep the Passover like you would the first month. So he doesn't, notice what he doesn't do. It's all right. So just, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Those dead bodies, ah, a couple dead bodies. What does that matter for the holiness of God? No, no, no. They're not to come and approach God. They're not, they're not to come into this. But they are to take serious the celebration the next month. And then look at chapter 9, verse 13. And, and I want you to keep in mind that we just had a discussion with a bunch of men that have encountered a dead body, can't celebrate the Passover, passionate about taking care of it. Moses has sought God. God has given an answer. And then he, he says, um, but the man that is clean... And it's not in a journey, because that was the other option. If you're away, you could come back and do this. And forbeareth to keep the Passover. Doesn't do it. Even the same soul shall be cut off from among his people, because he brought not the offering of the Lord in his appointed season. That man shall bear his sin. If you blow off the Passover, you're cut off from everything Israel. From being God's people, Notice that last statement. He will what? He will what? Bear his sin. Now, who bore our sins? Christ did, right? We say that. 
He bore my sins on the cross. So if you bear your own sin, what does that mean? You're, dead. you're eternally dead. You're living, but you're, you're dead. You're the walking dead. God's not being casual. It's not like, well, I can't stand Israel anyway. I'd rather roam in the desert with, with, with uh, uh, the Midianites. No, it, it's, it's an it's a eternal statement that's here. This depicts an unbeliever. You don't celebrate the Passover. You're blatantly saying to God, I don't believe in you. I don't believe you redeemed me. I don't want anything to do with you. And God says, get out and bear your sin. Yeah. Hey, it's, 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 that, it's the idea of re, it's rejection. And, and we look and say, man, God is harsh. No, God is their redeemer, and they're deciding to blow off God. Yeah. I put any connecting principle for today. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring it down a little bit for the person who blows off the Passover and put it in, in a little bit of a, a church setting. How quickly are God's things set aside for our own? And just process that for a second in a small way. Now, you're not going to be set aside to bear your own sin because of it, but just, just process that. I'm always fascinated by the things that we have to keep. Like, oh, you know, sorry, can't do this. I have to do this. And then later on, something else comes up, and the thing you had to do, you suddenly don't do because the other thing's more important. But you know, it's fascinating, and this is just looking at a cross-section. We all know it. The person that never makes highest priority seems to be God. And in Israel, he always was the highest priority. And nothing else was an excuse that would work. And I would say, as you're grabbing a principle from this, and you look at someone, you say, man, who would be foolish enough to blow off the Passover? What do you blow off? I would never do that if I was an Israelite. Really? I don't know. Maybe God would have a different statement there. Maybe you look at what you do and what takes priority and precedence and see, does God take precedent or do I take precedent? And then I have to ask that question. Then I start to say, looking at my own life. It's like, oh, okay. That's a very convenient question to ask, Kenny, of other people. But now I ask it of myself. And I start looking through my day and I start seeing how I Make me more important than God in the things that I do. Yeah, I get it the next day. Uh, I, I took care of that. Uh, it's easy, right? And I want us to grab this keeping of the Passover idea, and, and we're looking for, because there's principles that tuck in the Old Testament that we need to make sure we're applying to our life and to this dispensation of grace and recognize we are very quick to not keep the Passover. Thank goodness we don't bear the same kind of punishment that they faced. They were very, give them, give this person credit. There's no credit due them. At least they're upfront about their rejection. I ain't keeping the Passover. And God says, you aren't a part of Israel. We agree with your decision. And just grabbing this and the importance that ties into it of putting God first. Offering of the Lord and if you highlight your Bible, in his appointed season, and notice it did not say your appointed season, in his appointed season. And here's a question. Are you doing and offering to God what is due him in his appointed season? Or do you keep telling yourself in your appointed season, you will do X, Y, Z and everything else for God. But in this season of life, I can't do that. I don't see that in the Bible anywhere. His season, 
not ours. And then the conversation shifts to direction, and we find who is leading the people of Israel. Numbers 9, 15 through 18. I'll read that. Um, this is the cloud and the fire, but just get the implication that comes. And on the day that the tabernacle was reared up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, namely the tent of meeting, test, tent of the testimony. And at the even there was upon the tabernacle, as it were, the appearance of fire until the morning. And this is cloud by day, fire by night. And we all kind of take it casually. What a cool little symbol that floats in front of the people and, and they go. Because that's the idea we have. God is there to do their bidding. Hey, God, we're going. Go and head out. And then you get the idea. So it was always the cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And when the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, then after that, the children of Israel journeyed. And in the place where the cloud abode, there the children of Israel pitched their tents. At the commandment of the Lord, the children of Israel journeyed. And at the commandment of the Lord, they pitched. As long as the cloud abode upon the tabernacle, they rested in their tents. And when the cloud tarried long upon the tabernacle many days, and the children of Israel kept the charge of the Lord, and what? Journeyed not. Now, we've walked through quite a bit of organization, and, and, and we've done the recap these last chapters, and now we're ready to move out. And so God makes clear, who leads you? And what is he saying? I do. I leave. When the cloud leaves, so does Israel. When it stays, even if it's for many days, they stayed. God was to be their undisputed leader. That's fascinating when you... I'm going to go back to the drawing. And if you have the map, just look at it. It gives you a good picture. Number 11, chapter 11, people complain. Chapter 12, what makes Moses so special? Chapter 16 and 17, rebellion of Korah. Chapter 13 through 15, we're not going to go on the promised land. Moses, you've gone too far. Chapter 20, the people are thirsty and Moses actually rebels. You go back down here and you look on the far picture of, the, of, of Balaam preaching and actually unable to curse Israel. They're still complaining. When God is to be their undisputed leader and you read numbers and it's just a wine fest from Israel all the way through. God's the undisputed leader. And then, then there was a need for communications. I just wanted to go back just to see how poorly they're going to fulfill listening to this. Let's see if I get there if I've hit the button way too many times. Because God's also going to say, when I leave, you leave. When I stay, you stay. And then he's going to have Moses make trumpets, two trumpets. By the way, uh, they, they hung around for a long time. I think it was Emperor Titus in destroying and sacking Israel in AD 70 in the relief of his victory arch in Rome. Those trumpets are there. That's how we know what those trumpets look like. Because they took them at that time. That's a long time for these trumpets to function. So chapter 10 starts with two silver trumpets. And what it is, is, is God says, make these trumpets, Moses, because when I leave, you leave. And when I, when I stay, you stay. But how do we help the people leave organized? Two million people. Could you imagine the cloud starts going and two million people are like, time to go, pack up, out we are. Utter chaos, right? So God says, wait a second. Yes, when I go, you go. But we're going to use these trumpets to call you to, to order. First charge goes out, Judah leaves. Then it blows again, and then it's time for Issachar to go out. And so it's going to keep going to help them march, and these trumpets will also be called for an alarm. There's an enemy around us. There's a way to, to sound the alarm. If Moses wanted to meet with the chiefs, is he going to run through two million people? Hey, could you tell him to come on? It's time for the meeting. The meeting time's now. No, they blow the trumpet. They know they need to get over there. And so God 
has them make a human instrument that's going to facilitate what's taking place to have order. And then he, he talks in the end of uh, the first part of 10. He says, um, also, and he's talking about the trumpets, in the day of your gladness and in your solemn days and in beginnings of your months, you shall blow with the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings that they may be to you for a memorial before your God. I am the Lord your God. In other words, these trumpets are going to be for when you make offering, and these trumpets are going to be through your history, blown for victory and blown for celebration. And every time you hear the trumpet, right, this human instrument designed to help them be more organized, when you hear it blown, what are you supposed to remember? What's the last phrase? I am the Lord your God. Ultimately, every time they heard it, they're supposed to remember one thing, that God's God. And one of the things, and we've been talking through numbers, and we moved through a lot of chapters right now, and we're getting ready to exit Mount Sinai and move to the wilderness of Paran, and we're going to see a lot of activity taking place. But as we move in this direction, as we look at this, get to Kadesh Barnea, get, see Israel's utter failure, get into the narrative, we're watching God reminding them of who's dedicated to him, who's giving atonement, that they need atonement, that they're to give equally, that they're to worship, to understand that God is not owned by them, but instead they are owned by God, that they're there to fulfill his purpose, that he moves, they follow. Every time you hear the trumpets, for, they're very organized, but when you hear it, I want you to think of God. I am your God. And when he blesses this, I will bless you uniquely. And you see this focus in on who God is. They're focused on their Redeemer. And so as we're at the cusp of leaving Mount Sinai, it is with a people prepared. They're counted and they're cleansed. A people remembering who had redeemed them and to whom should they be faithful and dedicated. A people aware of what? God's holiness, His mercy, and His kindness. And a people understanding that God is the one who leads he is the one who sets the guidelines, and he is the one who's going to blaze the course ahead. Now, we have the benefit of looking ahead at numbers and realizing they know this in 1 through 10. There's no one has a doubt about what God wants, what God is pointing to, what God is saying, what God is doing. He's been very clear to them. But we're going to watch them quickly as life comes in, what they know is going to be set aside. What they should be aware of is going to be ignored because you're going to have Koath wanting power. Korah, sorry, that's Korah wanting power. Aaron and Miriam not happy because they want to be like Moses. In the end, you're going to see Moses acting like God and have to be punished for that. And we're going to see the, the collapse of it. But right now, there are people prepared. There are people remembering. There are people aware and they're a people understanding. And then this is my closing question. Are we a people prepared? Are we a people remembering? Are we a people aware? And are we a people understanding? Are you prepared for what God wants you to do, the steps that come in front? Are you prepared in Him? Are you remembering who has redeemed you and to whom you should be faithful and dedicated? Are you aware of his holiness? Does that enter your mind at all when you walk through your day? Or does our emotions come right to the surface because we're not aware that we are in the presence of a holy God? He's omnipresent. 
Are we thinking thoughts that we shouldn't because we're not aware of His holy presence? And then are we understanding who leads? And are we following? We're going to find, as I mentioned, that Israel stumbles here. And I'm sure we can sympathize with that, empathize in how we stumble as well. But as we're getting ready to launch forward, we see how God has graciously positioned his people.